Hey, it's Steve and welcome to Share, a podcast that sets out to do just that. From stories and reflections to ideas and concepts, each episode will dive into a wide range of topics and discussions that come from a journey through life. The simple fact I've discovered is when we share, we empower, not just ourselves, but each other. Well, the festive season is upon us, and firstly, from the bottom of my heart, I've got to say thank you. When the first episode of Share Podcast debuted on the 1st of September, fueled with a passion to help inspire and help others, I never expected the sheer support and love I'd receive. 17 weeks and 17 episodes later, each showcasing the stories, the reflections, thoughts, ideas, and concepts of amazing individuals who agreed to be interviewed, but more importantly, trusted me to help share their story. If it wasn't for those guests and all of you who have contributed to over 16,000 downloads to date, this podcast would not have been possible. With more amazing stories to come from the start of 2024, I thought over the next two weeks I'd share some of the best bits of Share Podcast so far. A great way to reconnect with a past episode, but also possibly be inspired to listen to an episode you may have missed. Before we turn back time and get into the best bits, I'd like to take this opportunity to wish you, your family and loved ones a very Merry Christmas and a safe, prosperous and healthy new year. I'm excited for what 2024 is going to bring and I'm looking forward to continuing to share the journey with you. Let me take you back to episode two with the founder of Mind and Body Travel and my brother, Mark Hodgson. In that conversation, there were a couple of really key parts for me. The first was when Mark spoke about success, and the other was around the benefits of adventure and getting out into nature. Through your work and and life through travel as well, how has your view of success changed throughout that time? That's a roller coaster, I reckon. I think in your 20s, you're just having a crack. I call your 20s blind ambition. You You don't necessarily know what you're doing, and you're just having a crack and trying to make something of yourself. And then your 30s starts to balance out a little bit. You know, you're still really ambitious. Your success is still about the car, the house, the salary, all those materialistic things. And then I think in your 40s, you start to work it out a bit and and find that balance. I know I've told you the story about a day when I just wasn't feeling it and a period in my life that I wasn't feeling successful and was in my old neighborhood where I grew up. And I drove past the house that I grew up in and I said to myself, geez, imagine if I went back to my 10-year-old self living in this very working-class suburban house and said, when you're 40, you would have traveled the world, you'd have a nice home, beautiful children and wife, your children going to a nice private school and getting good grades, driving nice cars, having good friends and relationships and networks. And when I was 10 years old, I would have said, sign me up. Yep. Like that would have been ab- absolute success when I was 10. But here I am now and I don't always feel successful. So it is a constant battle. Why do you think that is that? Oh, comparisons. I think we all like to compare. We always look at who's doing better than us or what the expectations in life are. Whether that's real or not. Well, we create our own reality there. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So we've talked on corporate travel, we've talked on family travel. Obviously, you and I both did the Overland Track with our brother as well with the group last, late last year. What's the benefits and why should people get out and do these wilderness treks, these adventure hikes? It's interesting that you bring up the Overland Track because the last couple of weeks, it is speaking to me. I feel like I need to go back. And for me, on the track, you know, when we were doing that six days or any wilderness trek, just the sense of freedom. We don't have a sense of freedom in day-to-day life. Mm. 
we are trapped in work, family, expectations, doing what we think that we're supposed to be doing, overwhelmed by information. And if you go out on a, a trek where you're not looking at your phone every five minutes because it doesn't work, that's a good start. Especially if you drop it under the waterfall. Uh, yes. <laughs> so there's some good repairers, phone repairers in Launceston, I hear, Steve. <laughs> yeah, expensive ones. And I think camaraderie on those treks, you know, group of 10 people and different conversations, you're giving more space for conversations, you're giving more space for reflection. I think that whole mind and body piece when you're out there is amazing. Leading up to a trek, I think, is great as well because you're setting yourself a goal. Who doesn't need a goal to get their health, their fitness, maybe get them inspired, working towards something? Yeah, it's. I think the benefits are probably priceless. Yeah. And if you look at the Overland track, obviously, it's quite well regarded globally. What's a couple of reflections that you had on the experience of the Overland track? Reflections on the track that I need to do it more often, need to do that sort of stuff more often. It's a good reflection. Um, I was probably thinking about how I should move to a cabin in the woods. But no, it does allow you to think about what's, what's important. I think is the biggest reflection you have when you're giving yourself some space like that. What's important in life? You kind of, you know, when you're on the track, it doesn't matter what type of car you drive, what type of house you live in, what title you have on your business card. That means squat out there. But I think that's the best reflection is that we're all human. We all need inspiration. We all need support. We all need kind of time for ourselves, spend on ourselves. For me, that's the whole perspective. That's the biggest piece of reflection there. Jed Xavier had listeners on the edge of their seat with his story and reflections in episode three. Take a listen to some of his story. I love the way he talks about after everything he has gone through, the growth and learning that has led him to change his view of success. And so by the time I was 14, just about to enter year nine uh, in New South Wales, at the start of year nine, I left school and left home. Went out and lived in a mate's garage for a while. Ended up in a pub, thought I could do a better job of bringing myself up. Unfortunately, when you're young and impressionable and very naive and you're 15 living in a pub, and it was a, a biker pub, it was a band playing pub in the early 80s, you get influenced pretty easily. And so the downward slide was very quick, ended up doing armed holdups and becoming a, a heroin addict and girlfriends prostituting for drugs and standing over people and bashing them for money. and Ended up homeless and was suicidal and, you know, had a rabid addiction and something had to give. And what happened was, a, you know, was a gift in one sense, but it was a, a terrible experience in another. I woke up one day not knowing where I was or how I got there or what had happened. Um, you know, think about Banged Up Abroad series on television or, or the Saw franchise. Uh, so it was like someone taking my kidney. I really didn't know where I was or what was going on. And what made it worse, I went to get up out of this bed I was in, in this room, and uh, my hands were handcuffed to the bed. Um, and I, I really freaked out. And then as I started screaming, two police officers came running in and held me down, and I slipped into unconsciousness. And what I didn't know was that morning I'd been found unconscious in a toilet block in a local park in the area that I grew up in. Uh, unconscious for 10 hours from a severe near-fatal heroin overdose. Um, and I was in uh, intensive care. 
I was handcuffed to the bed because my girlfriend had overdosed on heroin and She died from the heroin overdose and I was being charged with manslaughter and facing eight to 10 years in prison if I was found guilty. So here I am, 17, in intensive care, dying, facing a manslaughter charge when I recovered. The end of a, a three or four year sort of attempt to go out into the world and, and take care of myself had turned into a really massive disaster. I recovered after a few weeks in intensive care, got put in Long Bay Prison to await trial of manslaughter, went to court after I got bail in front of a jury for about a week. And I still remember the the, the the head of the jury coming out and, you know, I was facing some good time in prison and I, I just remember him clearly saying, you know, how do you find the defendant guilty, not guilty? And they said not guilty. And it was just a, it was just a, not only a relief, but also now a choice. What, what do I do? Like, do I go back to what I knew? By then I was 18. I turned 18 in prison. Do I go back to what I knew? which is drugs and violence and crime, or do I make some other decisions? Do I take responsibility and accountability or do I go back to blaming everybody else and making excuses? What does success mean to you now and how has that changed through your life? Wow, that's a big question. What does success mean to me now? Well, well, for me, at one level, success is just a construct, yeah? So it's just a construct. If you look at the Western world we live in, it's a construct that's about wealth, it's about materialism, and it's about status, yeah? That's our, that's our reference point. And, and, and that's real. People think that that's what success is. For me, I once thought that that's what success was, but now for me, success is moving forward each day towards the things that are important for me. That's what success is. So if I finish today and I've had a chat to you, I've got some clients to connect to after this, I've spent some time with my cavoodle, catch up with my partner, I'll do a bit of exercise, I'll write a little bit of my book. So there are a number of things I'll do. To me, that's, that's my measure of success today. At the same time, I've got goals to achieve things and to go places and to do money, and all, but that's not necessarily the success anymore. So the end result is not the success anymore. It's the fact that am I connecting to what's important to me on a day-to-day basis, not the outcome, the connection. Am I in the zone on a day-to-day basis doing what I want to do, what I need to do, what I'm exploring at that given time? Because that's where the most fulfillment for me comes. Yep. Yep. That's the most satisfaction comes from knowing I did things and I'm engaged in things that I'm passionate about and that I have purpose that fulfill me and that are important. That's, that's, I'm incredibly successful. The construct, there's an element of, yeah, well, I want to achieve that and do that and get that and be a part of that, but it doesn't have the, the gravitational pull that this sort of semi-spiritual type of approach to life now has. It's about now, am I engaging in the present moment and what am I engaging in and what does that mean? Yep. If it doesn't mean anything and it doesn't have a purpose and a passion associated to it for me, then I don't know why I'm doing it. That's why just over here I've got you know a list of about 10 things that are really important for me to engage in on a day-to-day basis that give me life. And if I go south, get depressed or sad or off track or annoyed or frustrated, it's usually because I'm not focusing on those things. So my success is a moment-to-moment proposition built on the things and uh, of engaging in that have purpose for me. In life, 
Many of us have those aha moments, the pivotal points in life that lead to realisation, to deep reflection and towards a road of transformation. Karen Pereira in episode 4 had some powerful reflections on her journey. I love how she talked about the day she knew things had to change and also the move from her old party life to her new season and the boundaries she had to put in place. I had a life-changing moment probably about nearly yeah, nearly two and a half months ago and it was just a moment that I, I just woke up and I thought something's not right, something's got to change in my life. I'd done a lot of things on my own and through that you build up this masculinity, you know, this guard. It's like you've got this guard of honour, like I can do anything I want and I'm, I'm on my own and I'll do it on my own. But at night it's very exhausting. People won't tell you that. But as a woman with femininity and beauty and love and gentleness and softness, that didn't come out. I wore this badge of honour where it looked softness on the outside, but I was broken inside and I had to be really fierce in trying to put those pieces together. And this turning point was I was tired, Steve. I was, I was exhausted. I was crying mostly every night. I was numbing pain in bars, in dark places. I had fruitless relationships, fruitless friendships. And it, you know what, it runs its course. You get up, you don't want to be hung over anymore. You don't want to have the burdens of your life that you've carried around for years and years just weigh you down. And I had a massive life transformation moment. And I looked around. And that's when I said, who are you, Karen? What are you showing to your children right now? Because who I am as a woman and what they see, it wasn't healthy. And I had to become healthy. I'm physically healthy. I'm super fit. I lift weights. I walk. I run. That's not it. That's just the outside. Because now I'm building up strength and muscle and trying to mirror my heart because I've got to do it on my own. But I'm not masculine. I'm not designed to be masculine. I'm feminine. And I looked around, Steve, at my 200 pairs of shoes and my bursting wardrobe and all my big costume jewelry, and I gathered it all in bags. I put every one of those shoes. I kept a few shoes, pairs of shoes for me, and I emptied all my costume jewelry, all the big bangles. And what was cover-up? It was stuff. It was stuff that was clouding, protecting my broken heart because I would never let anyone see that because at work and uh, in functions amongst, there's very close people that would have, who know me for who I am, but strangers outside of that, she's confident. And yes, I am. But inside I was broken. I had pain and I gathered it all up in a massive bag, loads, sold them, gave them away, free, have it. And I was left with very minimum. And I looked at my wardrobe where all my shoes, you know, that, that was a symbolic, that was a part of me. Like someone has an attachment to their car and my wardrobe, that was me. That's who people knew me for. And I gave it all away. I headed down to the op shop. And I said, I've got some stuff for you guys if you want. And their eyes lit up like Christmas tree. I'm like, I bet they did. I said, 
That's exactly the reaction I wanted. I want someone to take whatever I had for their eyes to light up. So who's ever walking around in my shoes right now, I want their hearts and spirits to light up. I want them to feel amazing because that was the purpose of giving all that away because now my new purpose is loving myself, emptying the stuff that clogged my life, Steve, that was all, you know, in every facets of my life. It was, I couldn't breathe. The crying every night, I would cry and I couldn't breathe, but there was pain. I was crying out all the pain and I didn't know at that time. And so I cleared out this wardrobe. I've got minimum jewelry now. Uh, Like I said, just a few pairs of shoes, some staple items in the wardrobe. I feel free. That's amazing. There's, There's a price to freedom, Steve. If you're willing to go down that path, oh boy, it's it's worth it. It's so worth it. It's interesting because your story reminds me of what Wayne Dyer talks about in one of his videos where he got to a point where he had a house full of everything and he basically had a meeting with his manager and said, here's the keys to my condo, sell it all. And they said, oh, well, what do you want me to package up? He said, no, just sell it all. He just walked away from it and he said he had never felt so free as he did at that moment. That moment, Steve, I get it. That moment of freedom, of the weight of years on my shoulder. And, you know, I actually do shoulder presses now. Like, you know, I I was doing shoulder presses before, but now when I lift those weights, I breathe better. My breathing's better. My shoulders are stronger because I've lifted off all that weight and pain. And yes, When you walk away and when you're ready, you never, ever look back. I've never had one moment of regret in that two months. And there's another element of that as well. I decided to not drink. That was a big turning point for me. The alcohol component, sure, I can sit here. I wasn't an alcoholic. Oh, you know, maybe I was. Maybe there was an element of me that was addicted to the substance because I wanted to numb the pain. The pain so deep, sure, you can function. Of course, you go to work. It, it wasn't as if I was smuggling bottles and, you know, that again, we're trying to, I'm trying to justify. No, I could drink. When I got home from work, I could drink. And it was numbing. It was numbing. When I would go out, I would go out from Thursday. I would have this great lifestyle and go out, meet people. That moment when I gave everything away, that was the day I said, got to give this other part away as well. It was destroying my soul. Again, another level of freedom. We just keep going through levels of freedom here. They're just layers, layers. All those tears, I cried layers. I had to get down to the deepest layers because that's where the work happens. I've seen you at many a party. Oh, I'm the party girl, but you know what? I still am. (laughs) The way I was designed and my heart is, I will still crack the sarcastic joke and be the life of the party with a lemon lime and soda. (laughs) And I, I have had a massive social life. My job 
gave me wonderful opportunities with that. And I met some incredible, incredible people along the way. And it was all part of the journey, you know, and it was, oh, it was a fun time. But there's, but there's a time for that and there's a time to slow down and discover who you are and how I, how I describe it, there's seasons. Yeah. There's many seasons that we go through and we do change and we do tweak ourselves. Some people may not stick around, Steve. They might fall off and go, you know what, I liked the old Kaz. I liked what she brought. That doesn't, her, new, her new life doesn't suit me. It doesn't serve me anymore. They were only there for the fun times and you start to see new people come into your life that fit your energy and your vibration and it's pure and it's beautiful and it's authentic and it's loving. There's a trust that you put in that that the people that hang around are actually your genuine friends. They are, Steve, and it's so important who you surround yourself with because your heart, you can genuinely give to the people that love you and who have the same energy level as you, who want you to grow and, you know, be an inspiration. And as you get older, you see the significance of how important that is. I've been let down so many times in friendships, so many times. And I've had this, can't believe, no, they could do that. They could just reject me. But that rejection came from a place of rejection within my heart. I didn't fix that at that time. So the hurt was immense. Now, that's okay because they didn't fit my energy. That's okay. That's good. I'm glad they left because they'll find someone else who will fit their energy and they realize that. And also, Steve, another part of transformation in my life, I didn't know before, but it's a thing called boundaries. Never knew before, never understood it. Come, everyone, come into my life. Take, take. Oh, you want some of this? You want my kindness? You want my love? You want my time? I'll give it all. Now I have a very beautiful boundary that surrounds me and protects me now. Again, that's hard to do, but it's discipline. I just keep going back my absolute pursuit of this happiness. If you want something that bad, you will start to put things in place to protect that freedom and that peace. And so that's another element of where my children have seen the boundaries in my life. It's so refreshing and it's beautiful. When I spoke to Tara Moana Jr., the 25-year-old who just claimed the gold medal as a super heavyweight at the Australian Championships, his eyes were on another gold medal and Olympic qualification for the Paris Olympics at the Pan Pacific Games. Well, I can share that he recently did win that gold medal and will be representing Australia at the Paris Olympics next year. Tara Moana Jr., in his chat with me, was very honest in his answers and reflections, all of which provided some great tips not just for aspiring boxers, but for all of us in life. Now, tell me one, one thing that I really respect when I watch you fight. You've just got this genuine joy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure why. Um, yeah, fighting is not really a bit weird, my um, relationship with boxing. I don't really love it, but I've got the skill. And because of some of the reasons I, I want to accomplish, 
I feel like um, boxing, well, it was written somewhere. Apparently, it's the hardest sport in the world. So my thinking is if I can if I can conquer this and get a gold medal in this, who says that you can't do it or anyone else can't do it? Because I was just like everyone else, you know, just living life. And then I decided one day after my 21st, oh, I'm going to do this. And then to me, it's like if I do it, anyone can do it. Because, yeah, I'm just a normal bloke like everyone else. That's a, a great message, um, great message for life as well. Yeah. And what I've noticed is just with everything, whether it be your business, sport, you don't get nowhere if you're not putting in the work. So, yeah, recently I've been training really hard and I can see the results in my game. So I'm just happy and privileged to be able to be here enjoying this experience because not everyone, not everyone gets to travel the world doing something they enjoy, like boxing. I never thought in a million years that I would be here doing this. Yeah, I'm just taking it as a blessing and enjoying the experience on the way. Who's been your greatest teacher in life? My dad. Like, he's pretty much taught me my mindset. And, yeah. Also, like, my coaches play a big part as well. When I was younger, uh, my coach, Russell Finn, now Gareth Williams and Shara Roma, like, they're playing a big part in developing me as a human as well, as an adult, just being around those type of people, teaching me what to strive for. Yeah, they're my biggest teachers. And Any words of wisdom that you've, your dad said or your coaches have said or you've heard along the way that really stick by you and when you, you find yourself that you're, you're doubting yourself or anything like that, is there anything that comes to mind? Oh, no, nah, not really. I don't remember stuff like that. I don't. For me, it's actions speak louder than words, so it's the way they act. Yeah, I absorb it like that. So. Words of wisdom from them, I don't really hold on to that type of stuff. For me, it's actions. Because you can say one thing, but if you're not acting it, you're a hypocrite. So it's the way they act as a person and carry themselves. That's how I, I kind of absorb information. And that's kind of how I want to be. I'm not really the greatest talker and that kind of stuff, but I'm hoping through the way I act, people can see what I stand for pretty much. So you started boxing when you were about, what, 12 or 13? 12, 12, yeah. I started fighting at 14. So I trained for two years and then had my first fight. What you know now through the experience, the travel, uh, the championships, winning the gold medal now, heading off to the Pan Pacific Games in November. Tell me if you could speak to that 12-year-old Tara Moana, what would you say to him? Oh, it's not about you want to win. The goal is to win. But if you lose, it doesn't matter. Hey, When you're young, especially in the amateurs, not so much the pros, but in the amateurs, it's all about gaining experience and all the things that you do. If you have the opportunity to travel somewhere, I suggest you do it because you're never going to get that time back where, as when you have the experience, it's there forever. So, for example, I can look back on just this year and I traveled overseas. I've got all that under my belt now. Leading into the future, I have this type of confidence because I've been there before. So when you're younger, even when I tell the young fellas that are coming up now, just we had nationals just recently and some from our gym. Some didn't get the win, but, you know, I just encourage them because they're only young. I'm 25 and I got my first national title, you know, and like they're in their 19s, 20. Like if they just keep on, keep on, keep on, the amount of experience they're going to gain in that time, you can never buy that. You can't buy experience. That's, that's actually what my coach Russell said to me at a young age, but I didn't understand what he said. I was like, oh, what, what's experience? Because, you know, you're just a young fella back then, you don't understand. But with age comes wisdom, and as the older I get, I've gotten, yeah, I've been starting to look back on the past like, oh, 
But I don't regret anything because how everything's played out has been like according to how it's supposed to be. So, yeah. I always talk about my greatest teacher, my mum, a phenomenal woman who has a strong belief and love for people. In episode five, I got to dig deeper into her reflections and talk to her about that very belief and also how the virtues can be utilized and have helped her through her life. Here's a couple of snippets of the conversation with Penelope Sampson. I mean, to get there, I went through, you know, management roles and staff training and development. Now, with staff training and development, I often presented values training, which was based on the social valorization component by Wolf Wolfensberger in the States. And that was really a personal growth for me as well, working with that and presenting that in the cert for. I suppose that aligned very much with how I move forward with values or virtues and digging deeper, I suppose, to understand those things, yeah. I ended up with project work with disability services and that was very much about training staff, how we should work with a person and not for a person and how we support someone to have better lives. And I've always said, person with a disability, if they're supported, their day is only going to be as good as the person supporting them. They haven't got someone who's... Well, that's a powerful quote, isn't it? It is. It is because if you've got someone supporting you that's not valuing you or not engaging you um, and they're doing for you, not doing with you, then you become invisible. And, I mean, that has... I suppose that has implications for all of us and how we interact with people, yeah. Yeah, that's just made me start to reflect in my mind. That's, you know, that's that's a quote for life, a vision for life. Yes, it is. I mean, it seems simple, but it's it's not, you know, yeah. So through the time in the disabilities sector, obviously you had a number of different roles. Are there some fond memories or reflections that you've got through that time? We were working uh, the TAFE, the old TAFE building in Ipswich, and we were teaching craft. I was doing plaster casting, so we were doing little models. I always remember one man, he would have been called someone with Down syndrome. You know, he didn't speak. He usually made noises, and he took the, the rubber off his plaster cast, and he saw his little figure there. And his excitement, you know, like, oh, yeah, oh. it was just, I've never forgotten that. And the other part I remember fondly is when I used to take, with an, with a team, we used to take people on adventure trails, I suppose you could say. They'd be people that were living in Chandler Centre and would be seen as having challenging behaviour. And, you know, engaging them in something like that, they would work together, they would help each other. We rarely saw any of the behaviours that were you know, and and it's sad because people become seen as behaviours rather than a person. People are wary of them, but putting them in a, a natural environment and engaging them, they change. Sounds like, and I know from talking to you over the years, that there was definitely some rewarding experiences through through that time in the disability sector. Yes, it was. Seeing who they are, but then also helping them to empower them to be who they want to be. That's exactly right. Yeah, taking them on that journey so they understand. And usually with those workshops or training, it's actually starting with 
them first so they can reflect on themselves and where they are at and then think about the person they're supporting in relation to that aspect. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard these days because a lot of things we're online today. And I I still believe in face-to-face and getting people interacting. Yeah. Yeah. Through your, your work and journey through disability services and the work you did there, you came across the virtues. Yes, I did. I mean, that was way back in the mid-1990s, and that was through a psychologist who talked to me about the Virtues Project. So she introduced me to that. She invited me to a two-day workshop. Working as a manager, I supported yearly planning for people we were supporting in the houses. You'd look at what activities you'd engage the person in, how, how you could improve their lives. So there was there was still that aspect to it. But with the virtues, it sort of drew me to the fact that it's going deeper. It's looking at a person's strengths or looking at their virtues or their growth virtues. So you start to think is how do we support this person to understand they should be more patient? What would that look like? Or how could we support them to take more responsibility? And what would we need to put into practice there? It sort of went one level deeper than the activity that, yeah, we were sort of suggesting. So I find found that fascinating. And I suppose it, it started to ring bells for me. I'd never really thought about it before. I mean, I was, I was brought up in a, a home where values were part of our life, I suppose. We had all the old proverbs and sayings and, they were all part of that, really, which we, we don't seem to have so much today. But I did think, I, I wish I'd had this when I was a young mum, to think about how I acknowledge some of my children's strengths of character, how I responded to them. Yeah, it, there's, there's a lot of, a lot there in terms of the strategies, you know, giving them time. I always say, how does a child know how to be respectful when they don't know what being respectful looks like. But if you acknowledge them when they are being respectful, then next time you can say to them, do you remember last time when this happened and how you behave? Well, that's what you should be doing today. So it's bringing them back to their strengths and who they are. And how do we know who we are if we're not acknowledged for that either? In episode seven, it was an opportunity for me to share what my mate and phenomenal community champion Matt Britton has done for years. He's a popular and very well-known physio who has a heart for community and for people. Here he talks about how he found a passion for physiotherapy and helping people. He also founded Trail to Triumph and discusses the reason behind it, what it is, and the cause it supports that sits very close to his heart. I worked in a lot of bars and played a bit of pub football. You'd get a free beer. That's, that was my payment. Uh, but mostly in bars, managed a few bars in, in Birmingham and in London. So they were, they were great times. And then you came back home? I came back home. So I lived there for most of 97, came home, lived on the Gold Coast in 1998, and then went back to England, 99, 2000, came home just after 2001, September 11 attack. Went to New Zealand with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, and then we moved to Australia so that I could study. Yeah, and what did you study? At first, I studied arts with the goal of getting to physiotherapy, which is which is what I'm doing now. So what made you choose physiotherapy? Well, when I went through school, I always wanted to be either be a physiotherapist or a professional soccer player. I was too lazy to do either. 
for the for the hard work. So I was actually in Scotland and I was in the main street in Fort William and the big band was coming down the street and uh, the bass player had a heart attack and died on the street. And there's about 20 people all gathered around him and I was about 30, 40 metres back just watching this unfold because I had no idea what I was doing. If I'm going over, I'm just going to smother him anyway. And this, this poor man died. And I spoke to uh, a bartender that night and he told me the guy's name, which, which I don't remember. But what I do remember is that he was my dad's age. And I always thought, if my dad is in trouble, I hope somebody can help him. And I still regret not being able to help that man. So I decided that when I go home, I, I want to do something in the health industry and I want to help. I don't deal with death very well. So doctor isn't for me. That's my brother and my sister. So I chose to work back through uh, my, my apprenticeship actually helped me get into university. So I went through Bachelor of Arts and did two years in that and then upgraded and got into physiotherapy from there. What do you enjoy the most about physiotherapy? Definitely helping people. You don't help everyone. You know, the, the, it's, not a, it's not a career where everybody is fixed all the time, but I do my best and I like to be there when someone, when someone needs me and if I can guide them in some direction, then I'm happy with that. I always love one of the quotes over the years that you always said to me is that if you have to keep coming back weekly, I'm not doing my job right. Yes, I'm, I'm certainly one who would like to get you working yourself, maintaining yourself at home. But I, I, I live by, I, I guide you, but you fix yourself. Yep. Come back and see me for maintenance. Come back and see me if you get injured again. But my goal is to get you out the door as quickly as possible, pain-free, injury-free, but with a good a good understanding of what's happening with your body and with a, with a goal of if something happens similar in, in, in the future, you can try these little tricks or these little exercises uh, that we've given you and, and see if it works. If not, come back, give me a call and we'll, we'll have a chat and see if we can get you going again. Now, talking about your sense of community, do you think that came from growing up in a small town? Yes, I think it did, but I think it came from I think it came from the people around me closer to me. My dad was always very, very giving with his time, probably too much time, and just wanted to make things better for everybody. And I think I kind of followed that path where I just wanted to try and do good things and help people and help people improve themselves or reach their goals. And when you see like-minded people in your area that want to do it, like yourself and, you know, people like, Cameron Thompson, Adam Atherton, Laurie Guy, Shane Guy. You know, there's a fantastic sports scientist around the corner, Kate Stossel. You know, people like that that want to want to do good things for people. It makes you want to do more. Yeah. So, and talking about doing more, Trail to Triumph. Tell me about Trail to Triumph. So, Trail to Triumph started in 2014. My dad passed away from mesothelioma in March 2014, and a couple of weeks before he died, I promised that I would do something big for him. I didn't know what it was, but I promised that I would and asked him who he would like me to raise some money for. And uh, he said the Bernie Banton Foundation. So mesothelioma is a, is a cancer caused by exposure to asbestos. So when he passed away, I kind of had to think about what I wanted to do and it took me a little while. And dad being massive in soccer, we would... We would drive from Murrumbatta Mackay, which is a 200-kilometre one-way trip. We would do that trip there and back two, three, sometimes four times a week just for training and games. 
and then he, we would go running around the bush in Moorumbah on the other days. So I decided that I had to run Dad home and uh, ran from Kai to Moorumbah and had a little game of soccer at the end of it. And it was a uh, it was a tough run that year. It was none of us really knew what to expect, what to do. We had to go inland on this pipeline road, so it was a dirt road the whole way. The highway's too dangerous, and it started from there. And we we got to Moorumbah and raised a little bit of money. And there's a lot of more and more locals are out. Uh, and then we realized we had to drive two and a half hours back to Mackay and everybody was tired. So try to get a little bit of rest. And from then on, we just went, we can't, we can't do that direction anymore. So now we run the other way. We run back into Mackay and we're growing. We started with one full-time runner and a couple of helpers and Jared Townsend on the bike who Jared came up with the name of, of the not-for-profit. He came up with the logo. Obviously, the, the Aston Villa colours were, were my idea. And he was he was everything on the bike. He was in social media. You know, we had Daryl Crowder, who he was still, still involved. He was one of Dad's best friends. He's basically in charge of the event uh, when, we, when we run. And now we have 45 runners going up this year in two weeks' time. Massive. And nearly 40 crew. So we've, we've got a big team this year. Yeah. Well, mentioning Trail to Triumph, this episode, people will be listening to it as you're probably just over the marathon mark on, on day one. Okay. Yeah. So we would have we would have left Moranbar Soccer Club, Moranbar Hawk, at three o'clock in the morning. We we sleep in an open air shelter um, that they built in my dad's honour. And so we'll we'll see photos of the Tony Britton shelter. Uh, we'll run out of Moranbar along Mills Avenue and then up towards Funiella Coal Mine. We'll turn left, uh, sorry, turn right. And head to Broad Meadows where BMA Broad Meadows put on a um, beautiful breakfast for us. So uh, thanks, Broad Meadows. I enjoyed it this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it's going to be bacon and eggs. There's going to be some fruit. There's going to be some fruit juice. There'll be some, you know, there'll be some drinks there. But everyone will be everyone will be fed and very happy. Oh, good. Well, I'm guessing all the all the crew won't be listening to this podcast on that day, but maybe the volunteers can in the in the car. Quite possibly. I'm, I'm sure they'll get around it and give me a bit of grief throughout the weekend. Now, the mission around mesothelioma, obviously there's a lot of spotlight on a lot of dust, other dust-related diseases as well that have come from that. Yes, so mesothelioma, silicosis, black lung, which is you know something big in, in Moranbar at the moment, and the coal mining towns. You've also got farmer's lung, there's a groomer's lung. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot going on in, in the dust space and silicosis is, is something at the moment with the, with the granite bench tops and with, with the trades that's, that's really hitting people hard at the moment. Now, since the, the first year back in 2014, I think you've raised over $430,000? Yes, we're about, we're about there, yeah. That's awesome. And tell me, where's that money gone and, and where is the money going into the future? Okay, so the first the first few years we gave to the Bernie Banton Foundation. That's who my dad asked us to look after. So they they go around Australia basically, but a lot of New South Wales, and create awareness around asbestos exposure. From there, we started working with the Lung Foundation, where we've partnered with them, and we've we've created a grant for uh, a researcher in Adelaide, I think, who is working with mesothelioma and created a register for, for patients. From there, we started work with the Heart of Australia. This organisation is incredible. It's run by Dr. Rolf Gomes. And if you if you have a look at the Heart of Australia website, there's an Australian story program on the bottom of the page. 
When it comes to mental health, I'm a passionate advocate for working to not only share my journey through it, but also look at ways to help. That led me to meeting Wade Hurst as I undertook the mental health first aid course. I caught up with him in episode eight to chat all things mental health. So here's Wade talking about mental health first aid and also when working in that space, how important self-care is. And I definitely want to ask you on some of those, the Dolly's dream, your role with that. But first, when it comes to mental health, you've had the experience through elite sport, student accommodation, obviously various workplaces. What are some of your reflections on mental health in the workplace or in, in sport or just in society overall? Yeah, particularly doing this work, especially within the, within the workplaces, I think it's something that a lot of places have a bit of a focus on or some places that see, you know, the AUAK day, hey, we're, we're promoting that people should check in on each other and we'll have a big morning tea and, and get together. And as I always say, it's the next two or three slides behind the AUOK that are the most important ones. And are you arming your staff with the abilities and weapons to be able to assist someone to be able to say, okay, well, if you're not doing so well, you know, I know a bit of information about this. And maybe I can I can help you out. And certainly in going through and working with particular organisations, you know, some of some organisations don't have it as high up on the list as what others do. And for those that do have it high on their list and, and, and are accrediting some of their staff, that there's lots of stats and information around how much more productive a workforce will be if they feel they work in a mentally healthy workplace. A, a large reduction in leave, whether that be personal leave, sick leave, whatever places call it at the moment, um, but a reduction in leave based on having a mentally healthy workplace as well. So, so it's really important. And now that the psychosocial risk side of things has come into it in terms of workplace health and safety, it really needs to be something that, that workplaces focus on. And that's in some of my conversations with workplaces to say, hey, this is really, really important, but it might not be as important as the sales training, as the personality profiling, as the leadership training, as the staff management training. And then we might consider, you know, some mental health training as well. Whereas all those other things that you might do probably, you know, almost first stem from having a really mentally healthy, healthy workplace. And the, the stigma attached to, you know, mental illness and, and, and mental health. And for me, just the understanding around what some of the mental illnesses are, what some of the conditions are. I find there's a lot of people out there who don't quite understand what that means for the person going through it. And without having that knowledge, then it's much harder to help and assist the person if you don't have really good understanding of yourself. And I think it's it's turning. We certainly have a lot more awareness programs, more particular days, more focus on some of the mental health and mental illness side of things as well. But certainly for me, I think it should be certainly something that's top of the list for, for organizations to and, and it's one of those really hard things I always say to people. Once people come and do the course and become accredited, they go, everyone in our workplace has got to do this. Like every, we're just sending everyone, everyone's got to do it. It's so important. But from the other end in my conversations with organizations, it's like, yeah, we might send one or two people, we'll get a feel for it and see what it's like. And it's just trying to get to that point. But just for people to see the benefit before they've gone through and completed it as well. And all the Content within it is is so important, and the practical ways to respond are, are amazing. And I, I will always say to groups, I'll guarantee you, after the two days, you will feel comfortable being able to do that, even if you've never had that conversation before. You'll have the right tools to be able to, yeah. 
So that probably leads to what is mental health first aid? Yeah, mental health first aid's uh, training provided that will allow people to learn the tools to be able to assist someone who might be developing a mental illness or have a worsening of a mental illness, but also to be able to respond to any crisis situation that person might be going through at that particular point in time. And, and I always say we make it legislated that we have you know physical first aiders within our workplace. And again, I would think that you're probably more likely to come in contact with a customer or a staff member that's having a panic attack as opposed to having to do CPR for a heart attack or someone that falls over and breaks their arm. We legislate for one, we don't for the other just yet. Hopefully that might happen at some point in time, but very similarly, mental health first aid doesn't make you a practitioner, it doesn't make you a doctor, you can't diagnose people, you can't prescribe medication, can't necessarily help people out directly through you, but it's similar to physical first aid. If you find someone who's unwell, you can respond and you can help that person out until they seek further help and very much the same for, for mental health as well. And gives a really good foundation for recognising when someone's becoming unwell. And I think that's one of the key components of the course because a lot of people will say, hey, I well, know people have bad times or go through some stuff, but how do I actually know that they might be developing depression, anxiety or a substance use problem? And, and being able to go, hey, well, over a certain period of time, which we can define certain characteristics that they might be showing and what effect that's having in their life can be some of those really key things and you do see people during the course go and someone pops to someone's mind straight away and some people go oh I've got to check in on that person because now that makes sense why they might be that way and I probably haven't responded as I should have so far so certainly it gives people those skills and that education and understanding around mental illnesses and 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 a different perspective too because you do have people who still in some of the courses will you know say oh well I thought anxiety was something that you had a choice to do like if you get a stimulus and you start sweating that's your choice to start sweating or to start feeling sick and it's once you explain that the person doesn't have any control over that that is something that the body just does and and takes over and feeling of being down through depression isn't something that you could just say to someone you just be more positive you'll get through it it's actually a feeling a feeling that person has and the impact it has on their life yeah so there's some really good tools around being able to equip people to be able to assist and help and have that conversation and have a result from the conversation other than are you okay no i'm not okay well i'm not sure what i can do but hope you get better and I'll, I'll check in now, check in on you to more so, okay, well, how long have you been feeling that way? What impacts it having on you? Have you considered seeing someone? Have you spoken to your GP? Here's some really good supports. Here's some things you can do yourself to make yourself feel better. And I'm here to help you out whenever you need it. And that's essentially how that, that conversation plays out. One of the key things I wanted to ask you on in the mental health first aid course, you said, as a men- mental health first aider, one of the key things is really self-care as well. I wanted to ask yeah. you, all the work you do with Dolly's Dream, you're instructing courses, what does Wade do to look after his own <laughs> mental health? Yeah, I, I do it fairly well, but certainly at times I don't do it as well as I need to. That certainly come, that realisation comes from having been previously in those roles and certainly not looking after myself in, in, in doing that, which is similar led to burnout and not not coping so well with with the stresses of life in general 
so, but now, yeah, it's re- it's really important to, and I'm lucky I've got people around me who, you know, I'll sometimes preach to them that exact message. She'll then turn around and go, hang on a minute. What are you, what are you doing to do that? I'm still playing, playing AFL, still playing footy. So won a premiership a few weeks ago with our side, which is wonderful. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. But certainly playing a Friday night, training on a Tuesday night it is really helpful. I, I know and recognize if I, haven't been for a swim at the beach or been to the beach for probably four to six weeks. I start getting a little bit cranky and a little bit rough around the edges. So being mindful of that, looking at some of the, some of the mindfulness techniques, being able to stop at some point in time and go, all right, I'm not coping so well with some things that are going on. What can I do? Whether that be some breathing exercises or, or going through some, some mindfulness. I find the mindfulness is, is a really good one because it's not a, doesn't teach you how to relax or tell you how to relax. It is a it's a it's a focus on something at that particular time, whether it be breathing in through your nose, what feelings you have within your body at that point in time. But instantly, it makes you then not think about all those other things that are going on and all those other other stresses as well. But certainly, yeah, being able to recognise what what some of those things are and being able to to give yourself enough time to be able to do that. I won't always say I'm the best at that, so I'll, I'll tell everyone to be much better at that and we'll work hard to, to be better at that. But, yeah, I'm certainly lucky to have people around me and, and, and even the kids to constantly tell them and talk to them about it so they'll pull me up sometimes and go, well, why did you work so much at that point in time and you're cranky now, so what are you going to do to, to change that and make that a little bit different, So, which is good and, and they're great advocates for what I do and and being able to, yeah, it's really, really proud moments when my youngest will come home and say, he'll say, oh, someone wasn't doing so well today. So I asked how they were and how they were feeling and how that makes them feel. And yeah, so that's, so that's really good. So they're starting to get that. And I think that'll be important for them as they grow up to do it. I always have this thing, talk it out Tuesday, where at dinner, we'd say, all right, how are you feeling about things and what's going on in your life? And what's some of the stresses? What's some of the, some of the things you need to, need to work on better? So, yes, it sort of became a funny thing to go, oh, no, it's Tuesday, isn't it? It's talking about Tuesday. But I think at an early age, if they can get an understanding of feelings are okay, you can own your feelings. If you're not feeling great, talk to someone about it. Talking about it gets it off your chest, makes you feel better straight away. So, yeah, so it's, so it's good for that. So, yeah, I've certainly got those people around me to, to pull me up from time to time to say, yep, you need to need to practice what you preach a little bit. So, But um, it can be the work, certainly, even the, the Two days delivering the, you know, the mental health first aid is, is quite taxing. There's still parts of that I find really difficult to deliver based on personal experiences. So that can, that can be draining as well. So it's a matter of taking some time to, to settle and do something that night at the end of day one or certainly at the end of day two anyway to, to keep well. Yeah. Otherwise it'd, it'd have a, a greater impact, I think, than what it does. Yeah. I was inspired by Kerry Lee Gockle in episode nine. Born with no arms, her sheer resilience and never-give-up attitude has shaped her life. Here she talks about growing up and one of her challenges when it came to school. And then something we all take for granted, learning to drive. Certainly an entertaining story. Tell me about what it was like growing up. Look, I, I don't actually remember my childhood being particularly difficult. I always knew that I was different to the other kids, but I actually credit mum and dad with in the very early days, giving me a full-length mirror in my bedroom. My grandfather made it for me. So I grew up seeing my body every single day. I knew from day one that I looked different, but accepted that my my normal was perfectly okay. And so there were little things along the way that were challenges, I suppose. One of the first things that we encountered was 
when I was ready to start school, the South African Education Department wanted me to go to a special school, which was actually an hour away from our home. We lived in a really small little coastal town and there was a perfectly good primary school there, which my parents had assumed I would go to. But when it came to starting school, the the education department said, no, 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 Kerry needs to go to a special school. My parents said, well, why? There's, There's nothing affecting her ability to learn. Of course, special schools have a very important place in our education system. And there are some students that a special school is absolutely the right place for them to to learn but for me that that wasn't the case I, I didn't need I didn't need to go to a special school and certainly not an hour away from our home so my parents are like no 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 this isn't going to happen but they said we really are opposed to this so I was sent to a number of child psychologists along the way and they were <laughs> their focus was making sure that going to a mainstream school wasn't going to adversely affect my development which we all knew it wouldn't, but anyway, we had to we had to satisfy others. And my parents were actually blown away when one of these psychologists said to them, "You know, we, we're quite concerned that you're giving Kerry Lee a false sense of being a normal child." Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, and my mum said, "Oh well, if it makes you feel better, I'll wake up and wake up every day and tell her she's not normal. Would would that be a better course of action for us to take?" <laughs> so anyway, it was decided eventually to let me attend the local primary school for. A term, and they said that if I showed any signs of struggling to keep up with the other kids, then I would have to go to the special school, which was, an, as I said, an hour away from where we lived. So I think I was in about the top five students academically at that end of the first term. So I laugh and say that I think I gave them the middle finger. <laughs> yeah, no, you definitely did. Tell me that decision, kind of a sliding door moment, I suppose, that if they did force you go to go to a special school, do you think that would have had a difference in your life? I think so. Um, I think certainly that back in the 80s and potentially back in South Africa, you know, when I started school, I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that special schools were as well catered to, to different disabilities. And I think it was a case of, well, if you had a disability, you went to the one school, not necessarily the school that was best suited to you. So I'm just not sure that it would have catered specifically to, to my needs. It just would have been the case that because I was different, that's the school that I went to. I think that nowadays special schools are far more nuanced. You know, they have they have such amazing programs in place, and I think there's far more room for for identifying which school would actually best suit a child with with different learning needs. I don't know what the outcome would have been, but I don't I don't think that I would have thrived in that environment like I did in the schools that I went to. Yeah, well, how amazing that your parents fought for that. Yeah, yeah, they, they they fought quite hard. So I wouldn't say that life has been a string of battles. It hasn't, but there are certain steps along the way where we're like, nope, this is something that we are actually going to dig our heels in, and it's a it's a firm no. And you know, we've we've picked our battles, and that was that was one of the early ones. Learning to drive. Mm. <laughs> Interesting time. <laughs> I bet. Yeah, so that's actually a cool story. When I was ready to learn to drive, we had a few years earlier been in contact with a lady from Germany who's who's almost exactly the same as me. So she's got complete absence of both of her arms and does everything with her feet. And she had a vehicle with foot steering modifications. So we contacted her and got all the information and got it translated from German into English. But what we realized is that these modifications were about $50,000 back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Wow. And we would have to buy, they could only be fitted on a VW Golf or Passat. We just didn't have those sorts of financial resources. My parents weren't in a position to buy me a VW Golf or Passat and pay for these modifications. You know, back then we didn't have 
the wonderful system that is the NDIS to assist with funding those sorts of things. So we're like, nope, we're going to have to find an alternative. So we actually got in touch with a guy by the name of Brett Nielsen, who is the first thalidomide survivor here in Australia. He's also got no arms and does everything with his feet. And he's like, come on down to my property in Mullumbimby and I'll I'll show you how to drive. So we took a road trip down to Mullumbimby and Brett lived on acreage at the time. And it was in my parents' Camry. And he said to me, right, he's like, I'll drive, you know, I'll take over for now. So I jumped into the passenger seat and I was so excited because I'd never driven anything. Like talking to a, you know, somebody who'd never ridden a bike properly, never jumped on her parents' lap and steered a car. So steering anything was a big deal for me. And my parents were actually watching from his back deck and we drove into the middle of the paddock and we just sat there for like 20 minutes. And my mum and dad are like, what on earth is going on? Because this car's not moving. And, you know, Brett was still in the driver's seat and I was still in the passenger seat. What they didn't know is that inside that car, Brett, he said to me, you hop in the driver's seat. He said, put your seatbelt on. And I was like, oh, I can't put a seatbelt on. I've never put a seatbelt on in my life because my mum and dad had always done it. Like there's no need for me to do it myself. And I said to him, oh, I can't put a seatbelt on, Brett. I'm like, can you just whack it on and then we can start driving? And he said, no. Nope. He's like, if you can't put a seatbelt on, he's like, I'm not teaching you how to drive. I was like, oh, for goodness sake. So the problem was for me is that I had to use my right leg to put the seatbelt on. But my my right leg has always been my stabilizing leg, so it's nowhere near as flexible as my left. It just doesn't move the way that my left leg does. So here I am. My hip felt like it was going to dislocate. I had muscles that I was convinced were tearing and was sweating, and Brett's like, come on, you can do it, go. I was like, I'm going to hit you in the face. Anyway, eventually got to the point where I just heard this click of the seatbelt. And I was exhausted, like I was absolutely wrecked after that. But that's when he he showed me how to drive. So I learned to I learned to drive his way, which was one foot up on the steering wheel, my right leg, and my left foot were down on the pedals. So yeah, I drove like that for for twenty years. I got my license first time round. I had lots and lots of driving lessons with a specialist driving instructor, and this is actually part of the story as well. So Ivor Booker was the man who taught me how to drive, and I drove that way up until. Probably how long ago was that now? 2019. I realized that the way that I drove had to change. My back was getting quite sore. My hips were starting to ache. My knees would ache. It's just, you know, getting old and <laughs> your body's not quite the same as it was when I was 18. And so we, we revisited foot steering modifications and I came across a slightly different foot steering system to what I'd looked at all those years ago. And now, of course, with the NDIS, there was the option for, for some funding to assist with the cost of installing those mods. So I got these foot steering modifications fitted, but the whole my whole way of driving almost had to flip because I was now forced to steer with my left foot and operate the pedals of my right. So not only was I steering using a different system, but I was also using the opposite feet to what I was used to. And I thought that I was going to be able to jump in and take off and everything would be sweet, but it was actually quite quite a long process. It was almost like relearning to drive, although I knew what the road rules were and I knew how a car operated. So it's it's kind of, it's difficult to explain because I went back to feeling like a learner driver, but not quite a learner driver. I mean, they did say maybe we should just get you some lessons just so that you've got you know the safety of an instructor there in case something goes wrong. And lo and behold, but guess who my instructor is a whole twenty years later? I have a booker. <laughs> so. Oh wow. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Best Bits of 2023, Volume 1. Next week's episode, we'll see more Best Bits as we get ready to bring in the new year with new opportunities and possibilities. Till then, enjoy a safe and Merry Christmas with your family, friends and loved ones.
Are you planning your next holiday? Let the team at Mind and Body Travel inspire you. With a focus on wellness and well-being, the team at Mind and Body Travel can assist you whether you're looking to attend a retreat, test yourself on an adventure, tick off that bucket list trip, or just create a travel itinerary that includes all that you want in a holiday while taking into account all that your mind and body needs. Revolutionizing the way people look at holidays and travel, they believe that travel should deliver nourishment for your soul, clarity for your mind, and renewed focus upon your return. So you ready to take off? Then it's time to check in with the team at Mind and Body Travel. Just visit www.mindandbodytravel.com. Thanks for tuning into today's episode. It's been great to have you along for the ride. Remember to hit subscribe and share this episode with a friend. Maybe just one person you think could benefit from what was just shared. Also, if you haven't connected with me yet, you can find me on Instagram at the Steve Hodgson and also share underscore underscore podcast. I'll catch you on the next episode.